culture is, is vastly different than, say, it was 50 years ago. And we look at the culture and we see a, a, a culture that is not uh, happy uh, with the gospel message. But that's all right. That's the way the culture is. We should not expect the culture to be happy with the message of the church. The, the culture needs the gospel. That's the need of the moment. And that was the need in Rome. And there among those philosophers and those architects and those athletes and those politicians, uh, to those lovers of art and beauty and sexuality, to those who uh, spent time in the Roman Colosseum looking for entertainment to give them some relief from their boredom, to those who were pouring themselves into their lust and into their passions, even degrading passions, Paul wrote this letter. So what has been the theme so far? The, the, the theme has been, Paul said, I'm eager to preach the gospel in Rome. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He said, I need to come and preach the gospel there. Why did he need to come there? Well, because the wrath of God was coming. That's what we learned in chapter 1. And the last time we looked at this book, we looked at chapter 2, where three times in the first five verses of chapter 2, Paul mentions the judgment of God. And so our theme today is going to be not just the judgment of God, but something Paul brings up in the next section, and that is judgment day. In the next section, in verses 11 through 16, we're going to discover that Paul talks about a day of judgment. He talks about an agent of judgment. He talks about the subject of judgment, the witness of judgment, and the outcome of judgment. So let's see how this works out as we begin looking at chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Paul says, For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For the Gentiles, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law being written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus mentions Sodom and Gomorrah in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, and he says about those cities where the fire and brimstone fell as an act of judgment, Jesus said of those cities that were listening to him at that time that rejected his message and his messengers, Jesus said, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than that city. Jesus obviously mentioned a day of judgment, and he does so a significant number of times in the New Testament. Of course, when the judgment of God fell on Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, that was an in-time judgment. In other words, it fell in the course of history. And if you look at history, several times in history, there has been an in-time judgment from God. In other words, it came in history. 
Did you realize that that could also be possible for any person today or any city today or any nation today? There could come an end time judgment from God in advance of what Paul is talking about here, and that is an end time judgment from God. There is a day of judgment. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Paul wrote, God has fixed a day. He put it on the calendar. It's marked somewhere out in the future. He has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And there is no partiality with God. We heard Paul say that in these verses. There is a day of judgment for us all. Not only is there a day of judgment, but second, we need to consider the fact that Paul talks about an agent of judgment. In that same passage of Scripture, Romans, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 31, Paul said, He, that is God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, that the agent of judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, the, let, let's let the Bible explain. In John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, when you think about that, Jesus being the agent of judgment, I'm just saying this is what the Bible says. You want to stop and say, well, I thought Jesus died on the cross because he loved me. I thought Jesus died on the cross to save me. I thought Jesus died on the cross to deliver me from the wrath to come. That is true. But it is equally true that Jesus is the agent of judgment. Not only so, let's, let's take, for instance, what if Peter was sharing the gospel with somebody? What if Peter was witnessing to somebody? You think about Paul who said, I need to come to Rome and present the gospel. I need to preach the gospel in Rome. Paul said, according to my gospel, God's going to judge the world through Christ Jesus. He's the agent of judgment. Well, what about Peter? Let's take Peter, one of the Lord's own disciples. Peter, on one occasion, went to the home of a Gentile man named Cornelius, and he went to his home to preach the gospel. And here's what Peter said, preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 10, verses 38 through 43. He said to Cornelius, reminding him, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And Peter said, and we are witnesses of these things that he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's the simple gospel, isn't it? Isn't that all of it? Isn't that all Peter would have to say? Jesus died on the cross. God raised him from the dead. 
We all saw him. Isn't that enough? No. Look at, look at the next verse. He says, and he, that is Jesus, he, Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify to them that this, this Jesus, is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of, all, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone be, that believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. In other words, the Old Testament has been pointing to the fact that Jesus is both Savior and Judge. He's the agent of judgment. In Romans 14.10, as you get to the end of Romans, Paul says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. But when we do, we're going to find it to be the judgment seat of Christ. Peter said that one day all men will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 5. The agent of judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's also a subject of judgment. That's very important. What's God going to judge? Well, it says here in verse 16 of Romans chapter 2 that God is going to judge the secrets of men. Now remember, Paul's writing to a culture that reveled in their passion, in their freedom of sexual expression, a freedom, the Bible says, to which God let them go. He released them to that. God will let you live however you want to live. He will let you do whatever you want to do. But ultimately, you're going to stand before God on the day of judgment. On that day, God is going to judge your secrets. He's going to judge your secrets. He's going to judge my secrets. He's going to judge the secrets of the Washington politician. He's going to judge the secrets of the priest. He's going to judge the secrets of the pastor. He's going to judge the secrets of the teenager. He's going to judge the secrets of every man and every woman. And there is no partiality with God. The Greek says he's not a lifter of heads. In other words, if you're hanging your head before him in shame because you've got secrets, he won't come and say, oh, it's okay because you're a young person and I'm not going to deal with you. Or, or you're, you're smart and I'm not, or you got a lot of money, so I'll lift your head and I won't deal with you harshly. Or you're beautiful and I won't deal with you harshly. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't lift up faces. He treats everyone the same. Have you ever been caught in a wrong? Caught red-handed doing something wrong. We use the expression, caught with your hand in the cookie jar. When I was 16 years old, I worked in the grocery store in my hometown. Hated the job. I was a teenager. I wanted an outside job that summer. I wanted to be out working, doing things with other guys. And here I was working in a grocery store, stacking cans on shelves. Some days, all I did all day on Wednesdays, all I did all day long was I bagged potatoes in five-pound bags all day long. And then at the end of the day, I helped watch the meat market. I would stamp cans with the price. And, you know, then when you changed the price, you carried around a can of hairspray. For those of you who don't know that inflation was going on in the 70s, we would spray the can with hairspray and rub it off with some toilet tissue and then restamp it with another price, a higher price or a lower price or whatever. I hated that job. I just hated it. I bagged groceries until I bagged groceries in my sleep at night. 
The grocery store is still there today. I still go there and shop for my mom. The two aisles that were there, the two checkout lines, they're still there as they were when I was 16 years old. And by the way, if you're trying to figure out, it was 50 years ago, and it's still there. And I remind the clerks bagging groceries how I worked there, and I hated the job, and they tell me I hate my job too. Well, I hated it so bad that on my last day, I thought I'm going to show these people how bad I hated the job. So on my last day, my job was to sweep up. And so as I swept up, I went down the aisle and I swept everything under the counter, one side and then the other. On about the third aisle, I looked behind me and there was the manager of the store looking over my shoulder, watching me. I have never, I had never at that point been so embarrassed in all my life. And that hounded me. My conscience haunted It haunted me for years and years. And I think Babs will remember. One day I saw him at the convenience store. He was sitting in his car. And I went over and apologized to him. I was past 50 years old. But it had been, it'd been haunting me. The very, he called me. He knew that I did it. But it still bothered me that I did something like that. It was terrible. Do you know what Paul is telling us here? He's telling us that somebody's looking over our shoulder. Somebody's watching how we live our lives. Somebody's watching what we thought we had swept under the rug. He's looking at our secrets, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that every idle word or every careless word that a person will speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. On that day, there will be no partiality. Why am, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because you need to feel the gaze of God today. You need to feel the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ looking on your life, looking into your heart, looking into your mind. Now we look at again at verses 14 through 16 of Romans chapter 2 as we move toward the conclusion. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now what this verse says, especially verse 15 there, it tells us there is a witness at judgment. On judgment day, there's going to be a witness standing there to back up God's judgment on us. You know what that witness is? Your conscience. You know what that witness will be for me? My conscience. My conscience that hounded me for years and years and years and never let me forget what I swept under the counter. My conscience bothered me years later. And on that day, when you stand before God in judgment, all of those secrets your conscience is a witness to. The word conscience, by the way, means joint knowledge. That's what the word conscience means, joint knowledge. In other words, somebody knows what you're doing, and there's a conscience that God has put in you. It seems to say here, by the way, that we have a spiritual DNA. Francis Collins, who has worked, you've heard Francis Collins' name over the last several years with COVID, wrote a book called The Language of God. It's about DNA and the, and the marvel of DNA as, a, as the code for life. But it seems that there's a spiritual DNA also written in our hearts about right and wrong, the things that we should do and we shouldn't do. And so when we do wrong, we feel guilty. We know we've done wrong. Paul said that about the Gentiles. They know they've done wrong. 
It's written in their heart. They have a law. It's, they don't have this law, but they have a law. And so they're without excuse, just like you're without excuse, because you do have this law. So there's this witness at judgment, my conscience bearing witness and accusing me or else defending me. So you say, well, my conscience might defend me. My conscience might say that I'm not guilty. Well, listen to what Paul said. Paul said, I care very, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. So if your conscience is clear, that's okay, right? No, it's not all right. Listen to what Paul said. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Your conscience might be clear. You might say, well, that was not wrong. Just like people today can say, well, abortion is not wrong. Well, no matter what your conscience says about that, ultimately, you're going to stand before God for whatever secrets you have in your life. Even if that secret, you say, well, it was not wrong. It certainly made me feel good. I certainly enjoyed it. It was not wrong. It couldn't have been wrong. But one day you're going to stand before God. And I'm going to give an account for my secrets, and you're going to give an account for your secrets. And the one we're going to stand before is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Finally, there is an outcome of judgment. Perhaps the most disturbing word in this whole passage of Scripture is not the word judgment, it's not the word secrets, it's not the word law, it's the word in verse 12. Look at verse 12, where Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be condemned by the law. To do what? To also perish. Because that's what happens to people who are judged by God. They perish. That's what God doesn't want to happen to you. He doesn't want you to perish. It's a terrible thing. Now you sit here in church and you say, well, I don't have anything to worry about. So you look at this passage of Scripture in verse 12. Paul talks about the people who don't have a law and the people who do have a law. The people who don't have a, a Bible or they don't have stone tablets. And then the people who do have stone tablets. What about the people who, who it says those without the law, they will, they will perish without the law. What about the people who do have the law? What about the pe people who read their Bible and they sin? What happens to them? The law, the law of Moses in the Old Testament. What happens? When you break the Ten Commandments, what happens? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 through 31, Paul tells us, or Paul maybe didn't write the book of Hebrews. Some think he did. We'll just say the writer of Hebrews said, anyone, that's anybody, no partiality with God, remember. Remember, no partiality with God. Anyone, anyone who set aside the law of Moses, the stone tablets, dies without mercy on the testimony of, of two or three witnesses. But what about you? You've got more than the law of Moses. You've got the New Testament. You've got the cross. You've got the Son of God. He then says, Since anyone who, who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as an as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. That's you. 
That's me. His people. I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of my secrets. And I'll be judged more severely if I have the book and I have the cross and I have the Spirit speaking to me and I'm able to set it all aside and say, I can get away with this. It really doesn't matter. Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, I'm sorry. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now he's painting a picture here of those who will perish. Perish means ruined as far as we're concerned. But perish means much more than that in the New Testament. It means lost. It means separated from God. It means eternity in hell. It means all of that. And that's what's going to happen to people on the day of judgment who are without the Lord Jesus Christ, never having put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who sin without the law will perish. And those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And they'll also perish. That's a frightening thing. So here we have encapsulated in Romans 2.16 this frightening fact of the day of judgment and everything that will happen on the day of judgment. What's the solution to Romans 2.16? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The outcome of judgment is to perish. The outcome of putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is everlasting life. And you'll not perish, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And remember, ultimately, one day, there is a day of judgment when the agent of judgment will be the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if today the Lord has spoken to your heart. Maybe you feel the Lord Jesus knocking at the door of your heart. The only way I know to describe that is you'll know it. You'll know you'll feel him tugging at your heart. And you'll know it's time for you to make the decision he wants you to make. Maybe to say it's time for me to follow Jesus. Maybe to say I don't want to stand before Jesus in judgment. I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven, which is what everybody needs to want to do. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross to save you. He shed his blood to open the door for you to go to heaven. But if you reject all that, what do you think will happen? That one word, that word, perish. Let's pray.